Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, punk music photographer Chelsea Warren takes us into the pit. I've had a lot of close calls, but day two of The Floor is Gone, I got tackled, like purposely tackled. I saw it, and it was just so fast happening, I couldn't move. Hop a tiny train to discover the miniature wonders of a West Virginia model railroad. It's not only for us to enjoy, but it's also for, for the community to enjoy. I mean, not everybody can have one of these in their basement. And Eastern Kentucky is reclaiming Appalachia's bootlegging heritage along a new moonshine trail. You can make apple pie moonshine or blackberry moonshine. You can age it and use bourbon barrels or use completely different recipes to come out with completely different moonshine. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This is Collective Action, a hardcore punk band based in Roanoke, Virginia. There are a bunch of bands coming out of the Star City right now, based around Flying Panther, a venue that doubles as a skate shop. Over the summer, I checked out a two-day festival there called The Floor is Gone. There was a full-fledged DIY scene. That's DIY, as in do-it-yourself. It's formed from the ground up, from the bands that perform to a local zine, an underground book distro, skateboarders, even a local punk podcast. And in the middle of it all was photographer Chelsea Warren. Online, Warren goes by the name Open Head Takes Photos and shoots a lot of shows like this. I reached out to learn more. Chelsea Warren, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. People who've never been to a show, can you kind of set the scene and describe a Flying Panther show? Flying Panther is like a warehouse, basically, um, and skate shop that is in northwest Roanoke. And the owners, who are fantastic, decided to turn the little warehouse area, you know, to like a mini ramp and a venue. It's all ages. They allow like anyone to come. I've never felt so safe before at like a venue. You go there and everyone's there for the right reasons. And it's like a sense of camaraderie and it's always a fun time. It's mostly punk and hardcore music, but they've had country artists. They've had bluegrass artists. They have a goth night every month. So you can pretty much guarantee some type of full spectrum of music at some point during the month at Flying Panther. There are a ton of different people, all walks of life, that come to shows there, every show. Um, you have, like, your alternative and your punk kids, but you also have as, like, what I would describe as, like, normal people, you know, that you wouldn't expect to see at these shows. It's nice to all inhabit the same space for music. When I first went to that show, mm-hmm. there's there's people jumping around, the singer's jumping around, and you're right there in the middle of it shooting yeah. photos. What's that like? seen a trash can thrown. I've seen chairs. I've seen a couch pushed in the pit, rolling chairs, pillows thrown, you name it. I've seen it. And that's something that I always have to take into account is I'm constantly aware of my surroundings. I'm looking in my peripherals, um, that whole thing, which is hard because I have to like zone focus a manual lens and plan my routes. Um, But I'm very, very lucky to have the vast majority of those people always looking out for me. And I find comfort in that. I've had a lot of close calls, but day two of The Floor is Gone, I got tackled, like purposely tackled. I saw it and it was just so fast happening, I couldn't move. Came like an inch away from like banging my head on the floor. But my camera went up, it's fine, I'm fine. And I just got up and laughed it off because that's just like part of hardcore and funk. It's just something to expect. So what's your strategy when you go into these shows? When you walk in, see the stage and the crowd there, How do you approach that as a photographer? It seemed like you had a system. Yes, I try my best to get there early, um, which doesn't always work because I'm usually late. But I plan my route as best as I possibly can within reason. 
I try my best to like do one side and then the other side. I've had to like basically perfect taking a photo as I'm still walking right across the stage. I've gotten some of my best photos just from doing that. But like I'd mentioned before, the zone focusing thing, like, okay, I wanna go there next. I need to focus my lens to that point. So when I get there, it's in focus and I can get the photos. Because it is like punk and hardcore, like you never know when someone's going to jump or do something else bizarre that you want to document. I try really, really hard to always get jumps because those are what like the people in the band, they want that of themselves, you know? So I try to listen to like the music and try to map out, do I think they're going to jump? I may be right like once out of every five times that they might jump, but I still try my best to like get it no matter what. How did you get into this, this culture? My friend, probably like sixth grade, showed me a band on Napster. Um, if that tells you my age or anything, which, you know, spiraled to another band and then another band and just kind of snowballed after that. Um, I would say I was around like 15 when I started going to DIY shows. That really helped like broaden like my spectrum and idea of like the different genres of heavy music. And um, it all just branched into like hardcore punk. I suppose what really like fed the fire and started it all like in the early 2000s was like my friends playing music. Watching them play music and doing what they loved kind of inspired me who already loved taking photos to start documenting shows. DIY is like so, so important and it's the most important to document it so that it lasts longer than us and people can look back and see like a sort of history on how things were. What keeps you in this? You talked about getting tackled at a show and that's like a deal breaker for a lot of people. What keeps you coming back? What keeps you so engaged? It's just exciting. It's exhilarating. It pushes me and my art to like new levels every time. Um, Cause no situation, even if it's at the same venue is the same. Even if I shot the same band five times, it's been different every single time. And I just love the music and I love our scene here and it's just important to me to make sure that it's documented and my friends have like living pieces of them doing what they love. Do you have a favorite photo you've taken? Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> um, I use like a manual fisheye lens, so it's got that bubble effect to it, um, which I love and has been like a timeless part of like documenting shows for as long as I can remember. Um, there's like a couple like where the vocalist and their mic is like right in my lens or a jump or just like the crowd like piled on top of each other trying to get the mic. Those are always like my favorite ones that I get because it's so important. But I couldn't, I couldn't just pick one favorite. So you've been doing this for a while and you've shot all these bands. Like what, what have you learned from all this? What's some wisdom you've taken away from all this? It's definitely pushed me past like my limits of what I thought was possible. Several years ago, my goal was like, I want to shoot bigger bands, bigger venues. You know, I just took pictures of Victor Wooten at the Jefferson Center this past weekend. And that was amazing and incredible that I got the opportunity to do that. But it's nothing like DIY music. I really think that DIY scene is like a critical part to communities. Um, it just offers like a safe space for people who feel like they don't fit in elsewhere um, or feel like they have no friends like them in a space where they can feel loved, welcome, and accepted and witness music that they love. It's, it's really important. Chelsea Warren, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. <laughs> thank you for having me. That was Chelsea Warren, a Roanoke photographer who goes by the name Openhead Takes Photos. The bands you heard were Collective Action, Dimension 6, Jail, and Sultry. Find out more on our website, wvpublic.org. Kentucky is known for its bourbon, 
But that doesn't mean it's the only liquor with the history in the state. A group of distillers wants to attract more visitors to eastern Kentucky by focusing on its historic ties to moonshine. WVPB's Shepard Snyder has more. Moonshine has a storied history in Appalachia. For bootleggers, it was a way to make a decent chunk of extra money on the side during Prohibition. Nowadays, you can find all different types of white lightning in stores. People are now looking at another way to make money off this once notorious enterprise. The Moonshine Trail involves seven distilleries and four other landmarks across eastern Kentucky. They're organizing the trail to try and get the eyes of tourists exploring the hills and hollers of the region. Ben Pasley is the CEO of Mount Folly Enterprises, the Winchester-based agricultural business which is heading up the trail. They've been able to use money from the American Rescue Plan Act marked for travel and tourism to get it up and running. We have a little more than $300,000 that we're going to be spending uh, on the Moonshine Trail and the seven participating distilleries and uh, tourism committees in their respective counties. That's going to go directly to connecting customers with these rural parts of the state. The practice of making moonshine caught the ire of law enforcement, but for many, it was a means of survival. It was a way to put, you know, literally food on the table to provide for a family that there wasn't a lot of opportunity, especially when you're talking about recovering coal communities. Pasley says the whole thing has an outlaw country sort of feeling. The term moonshine, you know, that's more of our language of our people, uh, the federal government doesn't have a legal spirit definition for what is a moonshine. But generally speaking, there is a basic definition for what most people consider the spirit to be. A moonshine can really be anything that is unaged off of a single plate. Uh, so a plate in the column, you have your, you know, your pot where the mash and the liquid is, and then that vapor Uh, goes up, hits that plate, and then turns back into a liquid. So as long as it's a single plate, it's fine. The trail starts at Lexington's Barrel House Distilling Company. Andrew Tyma is the company's head distiller. He says from a production standpoint, much of the appeal of making moonshine comes from experimentation. You can make apple pie moonshine or blackberry moonshine. You can age it and use bourbon barrels or whiskey barrels or use completely different recipes to come out with completely different moonshine. Barrel House is also part of the bourbon trail, but Tyma says there's a pretty noticeable difference between the craft bourbon makers and what you might find from the eastern Kentucky distilleries. When you think of the bourbon trail, you think of these massive distilleries that, you know, sell bourbon all throughout the country and all throughout the world. And then when you go start on the moonshine trail, you're going to go see these family-owned operations that might be in one little room and in one building. On the other end of the trail is Kentucky Mist Distillery, deep in the heart of Appalachia in Whitesburg. Its owner, Colin Foltz, comes from a long line of moonshiners. His grandfather sold the moonshine that other members of his family would distill. It just kind of intrigued me that he was, he was in jail so long over it, and then... Uh, he actually was in Atlanta during the time that Al Capone was there. So, uh, you know, it's just interesting. It kind of got me into it. Fult says that family history led to teaching himself how to make the drink. Today, he has his own way of distilling based on how his family did it back in the day. Years ago, the, the alcohol was so rough and had, it, they couldn't distill it as clean as we can distill now. So, you know, it had a lot of impurities in it, and, it, and the taste wasn't great. So um, they would add fruit to help make it more tolerable. As the trail takes off, Pasley says he'd like to expand it to include more states, each with their own brand of moonshine and their own take on Appalachian culture. He also wants to become a resource to help people set up their own legal distilleries across the region. We want to make sure that we share Kentucky's moonshine heritage predominantly right now, and then we'll look at telling other stories in other states. I'm Shepard Snyder in Lexington. Coming up, a model train club in West Virginia navigates an uncertain future. This is built to be permanent, so it would be really hard to break it up. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Along with trees and candy canes, trains have become a symbol of the holiday season. Think the Polar Express or Santa-themed excursions on local railroads. And generations of people grew up hoping to find electric train sets under the tree on Christmas Day. These days, model train sets are enjoyed by grown-up collectors and hobbyists. Earlier this year, Folkways reporter Zach Harold visited a model train club in West Virginia and brings us this story. Sometime in the 1970s, a group of model railroad enthusiasts in Charleston, West Virginia, started getting together at the local Presbyterian church to talk trains. As the club grew, they found a bigger space where they could set up little dioramas for their engines and cars to traverse. But then in 1998, the Kanawha Valley Railroad Association got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The county commission gave them some money to build a brick-and-mortar clubhouse, and members decided to use that new space to build one big permanent model train layout. So, like the still-driving men who once tamed the West Virginia mountainsides, they set to work. They built huge tables where they laid track and wired it up to electricity. They crafted rock outcroppings from stacks of ceiling tiles that they roughed up with wire brushes. Though sometimes they'd just find a nice-looking rock outside and add that to the layout. They built houses and businesses and barns, coal tipples, a replica of the Hawk's Nest Dam. They made thousands of trees from white polyfiber stuffing that they dipped in watered-down school glue and rolled around in ground-up green foam. Completing the layout took thousands of hours, over about five years. But in the end, the club filled the space wall-to-wall with the communities of Charleston, Elkview, and Thurmond, all at 187th scale. And you can see it. Just stop by any given Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. for the club's weekly open house. Admission is free, though donations are appreciated. I mean, it's not only for us to enjoy, but it's also for for the community to enjoy. I mean, not everybody can have one of these in their basement. That's Anthony Parrish. He's been a member of the club since the late 1980s and helped build this place. He says club members have created a little game for visitors to help them fully experience the layout and all its detailed complexity. Um, We have like a little uh, see if you can find it sheets that we give our visitors to see if they can find all the little detail that we have out here. There's one scene here where there's a uh, old moonshine steel located in the forest uh, in an area where you wouldn't really think to look for a moonshine steel. Uh, got rock climbers and stuff. Uh, there's a barber shop. Look really closely and you'll start to notice something besides those Easter eggs. Is that a 57 Chevy crossing the Southside Bridge in Charleston? There's the Kanawha County Courthouse, but where are all the high-rise office buildings and Haddad Riverfront Park? Well, see, this model doesn't just capture the landscape of southern West Virginia. It captures a moment in time. A single sunny afternoon sometime in the late 1950s or early 1960s. The club's old-timers did the majority of work on this model, and this was their way of remembering and reliving a little bit of their youth. But that doesn't mean the club is stuck in the past. Because as you stand there marveling at the West Virginia of yesteryear, along comes a Norfolk Southern diesel locomotive, just like the one you might see chugging down the tracks today. It belongs to Austin West. At 15, he's one of the group's youngest members. The engines that I have are ones that's actually been in my backyard that I've seen. And they've really, I'm really like, man, I want to have that. And now I actually can. Austin doesn't have a layout at home. So the one here at the clubhouse gives him somewhere to run his trains. And the club also has train cars and digital controllers that members can borrow, greatly reducing the barrier of entry for what can be a pretty expensive hobby. But that's not the only benefit newcomers like Austin get from paying their membership dues. He's learned a lot from the more experienced members. Because once you get into this hobby, it's not enough to just collect locomotives and rail cars. 
you've got to modify them. The cars are mostly dirty and patched, stuff like that, and the front engine actually is supposed to look like it caught on fire, like the real thing. It's all in making the locomotive look real. While Austin prefers modern trains, his buddy Joseph Watson is focused on the Norfolk and Western Railroad, trains that disappeared 20 years before he was even born. He has diesel and steam locomotives from the N&W line, which he's weathered with paint and special chalks, using techniques he learned from other members. Because everybody here does it different. Get those different opinions and add it all into what you do, and it kind of makes your own, own style on how you model. It's allowed Joseph to recreate something he was never able to see in real life. He's 20, and the N&W went away in 1982 when it merged with Southern Railways to become Norfolk Southern. It kind of makes you look back on how would these be back in the day? What would it be like to stand on the side of a railroad in the 1930s and see this coming down the tracks? And there are his trains clacking right past Austin's modern Norfolk Southern locomotives in this snapshot of mid-century West Virginia, the past and present of American rail travel alive on a small scale. The future, though, is less certain. Jaeger International Airport sits just up the hill from Charleston's Coonskin Park, and a proposed multi-million dollar expansion of the runway there would require a whole section of the park to be filled in with dirt. And guess where the Canal Valley Railroad Association's clubhouse sits? The building isn't doomed just yet. The Federal Aviation Administration is still studying the project. But the train club has already started looking for new potential locations. Member Mike Reynolds said any move at all will mean the end to this gigantic model of Southern West Virginia rail lines. This is built to be permanent, so it would be really hard to break it up. And whatever we take will be partially destroyed in the process and have to be redone. But then we don't know what we're going to, so we don't know how much room we'll have, or, or if any. It's a little ironic. The very mode of transportation that once supplanted trains as Americans' go-to mode of cross-country travel now threatens to take away a place where that history is celebrated. But while club members are concerned about the future of their building and layout, no one seems too worried about the future of the club. New train fanatics are being born every day. I got a grandson that's three years old, and from the, from the day that he had any idea what was going on, he has wanted to, to fool with the trains. I mean, it's almost like a, you know, a, a fox knows how to hunt. It's like they already know what trains are all about. I think it's magic. <laughs> I do, I think it's magic. In a very small version of Charleston, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. The first thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride. On a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one could change my mind but Mama tried. One and only rebel child From a family meek and mild My mama seemed to know what lay in store Despite all my Sunday learning Towards the bad I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore I turned 21 in prison That story is part of our Folkways reporting project which covers arts and culture in the region. Since it first aired, Discussions about airport expansion have continued, but there's been no decision yet. So the Kanawha Valley Train Club still doesn't know if it will have to move. In the meantime, the club's parking lot was recently repaired, and its usual holiday open house events are back on. You can visit weekends through December. For more information about the club, find a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Rates of mental illness have spiked the last few years. Depression is especially prevalent here in Appalachia. Data shows West Virginia in particular has some of the highest rates of depression in the nation. WVPB's Emily Rice has more. 
According to multiple studies, Boone and Logan counties are home to the highest rates of depression in the nation. Data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that in 2020, more than 18 percent of U.S. adults reported having ever been diagnosed with depression. In that same time period, 27.5 percent of West Virginians reported being diagnosed with depression, the highest in the nation. In the report, the CDC found that most of the states with the highest highest prevalence of depression were in the Appalachian and Mississippi Valley regions. Dr. Jessica Bradley is a psychiatrist at Marshall Health. She said the rates of depression revealed in the June 2023 CDC report were concerning to her as a mental health provider and a citizen. The data showed that an estimated 32 percent of adults in Logan County have been diagnosed with depression, which is the highest in the nation also concerning as a citizen because these are these are my family members these are my friends these are people that I care about and it's not just numbers these are humans with stories while the CDC report revealed Logan County as the most depressed county in West Virginia and the nation, Christina Mullins, commissioner for the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources Bureau for Behavioral Health, said the CDC's data was compiled from 2014 to 2020 and cited the newly released West Virginia Match Survey as the research her department relies on. We've all gotten a little worse through the pandemic and and. But I don't know that Logan County has gotten as worse as some as bad, you know, has worsened as much as other areas because my data right now is not supporting what's shown in, in and, and that data is valid for for the time period that it was collected. Match is a biennial survey, meaning data is collected every two years. One out of 14 adult West Virginians are randomly chosen to participate using a large database of West Virginia residential addresses. The first survey period was from August 2021 to February 2022. Data indicators are not exactly the same, um, but I had Logan County as, as 12th actually in the state for depression, anxiety, or PTSD, PTSD in the last 12 months uh, at 27% and the state average being 24.3. So they weren't they weren't the worst when I was really looking at the stats. According to the West Virginia Match Survey, 27% of Logan County residents said they had experienced depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder in the past 12 months. The highest rate, according to the West Virginia Match Survey, was in Boone County, just over the county line from Logan County, with 32% of residents reporting experiencing depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder in the past 12 months. Researchers for the CDC found that rates of depression in West Virginia might reflect the influence of social determinants of health or patterns of other chronic diseases. Social determinants are a really broad concept, and they start out as anything from food insecurity to parental involvement whenever you're a kid to job security and family stressors. On a community level, it looks like the economy and what's going on in the world around you, and that can be extended to just nationwide. So if you take all of that into consideration, everything is playing a part in where or how you're feeling about things. Boone and Logan counties were coal-producing powerhouses until the nation moved away from coal-powered electricity and the mines began to close. Now, one of the symptoms of depression is hopelessness, and it's so much easier to feel hopeless about things whenever the voices that you hear are telling you that there's no hope. In response to these challenges, Logan County residents are banding together for better health. The Coalfield Health Center in Chapmanville is part of a group that hopes to address southern West Virginia's health outcomes. Next to the clinic, WWHLC is developing a public green space for all Logan County residents. We have relationships across our state to try to meet the need in these rural populations because it's so difficult for people to get access to quality services or really just to get access to services, period, in the rural settings. They have to travel or maybe they don't have the finances to be able to travel to the big city. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of harming themselves or others, they can text or call 988 at any time for help. 
For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. We hope you had a good Thanksgiving day, wherever you are. The holiday is meant to bring people together, but sometimes the dinner conversation can push people apart, especially when they get into politics. In the latest episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay returns with this annual potluck dinner party. Here's an excerpt. Today, many Americans are turning their interest towards the 2024 election. So far, the two frontrunners appear to be President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, a rematch of the last election. I wonder what my guests are thinking in the early days of this race. We've talked a bit about trust, and and, and it seems like when I just said that word right now, I saw people on the left and the right shake their heads, nod their heads. How are you guys feeling about the 2024 election? Jay, you didn't feel confident about the last election. I texted my daughter this past week. We were talking uh, about some of the indictments in Georgia and some of the news and so forth. And what I told her was if Trump is found guilty and sent to prison, the conservatives in this country is going to go crazy. If by chance he is reelected, the liberals and progressives are going crazy. And what I told her is we're in for some crazy times in this country. The only thing that would stop is if he bowed out himself and he's not going to. You nodded your head, uh, Elliot, when he said that the, either side is going to go crazy. Is that, is that, you, do you, do, do, you've heard it, but it sounds like you may not agree with it. Well, I mean, I know and people are already crazy. So I don't I don't know that anybody's going to go any crazier. I mean, I think that, um, you know, people will act out. And um, I think that they have now, you know, we've opened a Pandora's box where people feel okay to do that. And um, I'm, I'm very worried myself. I'm very worried about all the things that have been opened up. We'll be okay here in West Virginia. Yeah. We got common sense, really. What if he isn't elected. What if he runs, because he could run from jail evidently, and he doesn't win, and he doesn't accept it again? Because he's saying that, basically. Well, and I think he would, but the only thing I can say is, So we go through this, uh, is this election uh, days? If the COVID and the drop boxes and all that was, was back again, which I don't believe there's no way they will be, uh, if all that was back, yeah, it'd be a problem. But uh, there's been a tremendous uh, attempt to do away with the things that could be corrupted. I think, and I, th- I think that we also need to make sure people don't use it as an excuse not to vote, that my vote doesn't matter. I think that everyone needs to still believe and know that every individual vote still matters. And, um, and I think, you know, because some people might just say, well, it doesn't matter. And, and, and it really does. That was Us and Them. The episode is called Potluck and Politics. To hear the entire program, listen online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the Daywood Foundation, and the CRC Foundation. Last year, four U.S. pharmaceutical companies agreed to pay states roughly $26 billion to settle claims that they exacerbated the opioid crisis. West Virginia expects to receive about $1 billion. Leaders of one recovery organization hope to use some of that money to help their rural community. WVPB's Brianna Heaney has the story. For Kimberly Holstein, the morning starts off by comparing two charts turned in by first responders. So from this, we have to always cross-examine with different things, so we get two different reports. So where that was unconscious, then we'll go to a Narcan News report, and this comes from our EMS um, squads. 
So if the person was given Narcan on that call... Holstein is the lead for the Quick Response Team, or QRT, an organization with Boone County Health that follows up with people who are struggling with addiction in the community. Sometimes they will get recommendations from police officers or community members who saw signs like nodding off, or they seem to have stopped taking care of themselves, and it could be because of drugs. Then the peer support team comes in, and they have a morning meeting where Holstein tells them where and who they need to go check on. I feel like we're kind of like a middleman. We, we exist to help connect people to the type of treatment that they need. That's Barry Stowers. He is one of the team members who goes out into the field. He and the five-person team travel around the county handing out food, Narcan, hygiene supplies, and they talk to people. He's from Boone County and is in recovery himself. All things he says help him relate to the people he talks to every day. If they say that they're fine with us coming back, um, we kind of put them in the driver's seat. So we don't force them to do anything that they don't want to do, but we let them know there's options. Today, they are going to visit a man who overdosed the night before and received Narcan. That doesn't mean he backed out because the last conversation I had with him on the phone was, go ahead and take a shower and start getting ready because we're going to figure out a bed no matter what. The team heads out to talk to him. Holstein then heads to county court. She works closely with the court, advocating for and weighing in on court decisions for people QRT is trying to help. Here in Boone County, between Magistrate Moore and Magistrate Burnside has allowed us to send 59 people to treatment through, through their court. Holstein is referring to Magistrate Danny Moore, and this morning she has a meeting with Moore. He says working with QRT has given him more options for rehabilitation for some of the people he sees in his courts and helped the community in doing so. And then allowing them to step in and offer help has made a tremendous turnaround. And as she said earlier, that's the reason why you see some of the numbers going down in this county. In today's meeting, they figured out a plan for one of the people in the court system who is in recovery to have charges dropped if she graduates from the rehab. And he told her that if she graduated with no issues, that he would consider um, wiping that out because it was trespassing. But she's estimated December 27th. Holstein then heads up to the sheriff's office for a meeting. He asked her to check on a woman in the community they saw when responding to a call at a house down the street. He said the woman looked like she may be in crisis, so Holstein headed down there. The woman doesn't answer, so they leave a note on her door handle. If she needs anything, she can call them. This effort put on by QRT is entirely grant-funded. But Holstein wants to be able to do more to help keep people off of drugs and help prevent drug use in the area through education, but needs more money to do it. One option is the billion-dollar opioid settlement money coming into the state. Boone County expects 2 to $3 million, according to the West Virginia First Settlement documents. I hate how this money came about and that so many people lost their lives. Um, for this money to be available, but on the other hand, I have to look at how many lives can change because of this. Holstein says the next step for QRT is to focus on more assistance for those coming out of rehab, strengthening programs that connect them to housing and jobs and even access to mental health care. We're going to get you into sobriety so that you're out of jail and, you know, we're going to keep them in sobriety for X amount of time, but where are they going to go past that? that court case is over, what options do we have? And right now, our county has none. She says she also wants to get into the schools to have a program to teach about navigating addiction in their community. Many families in Boone County have been affected by the opioid epidemic. Holstein says it's not uncommon for a child to be living in a home with a family member who is struggling with addiction. These kids have went, they have PTSD. Like, they went through addiction with their family. Sometimes multiple generations of addiction, they have experienced the worst of the worst. They have seen 
the things. The West Virginia First Foundation, which is responsible for distributing the money from the opioid settlement, had its first meeting November 6. How much and where the money will go is still being decided. On the drive back to the office, a little red Volkswagen bug stopped in the middle of the street, and Holstein stopped too. Out came a tall young man, arms opened in an embrace. Hunter Gillipsy was one of the people QRT helped to recover. Both of his parents were addicted to opioids. Now he's a year sober. Holstein says he is one of QRT's success stories. People like him are why she works so hard every day to expand the quick response team. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Boone County. Dr. Travis Steimling, a musicology professor and director of the Bluegrass and Old Time Bands at West Virginia University, died November 15. They were 44. Steimling was a big figure in Appalachian academia and played an important role in establishing the Appalachian Studies and Appalachian Music programs at WVU. Steimling spoke with Inside Appalachia several times. In 2021, my co-host Caitlin Tan interviewed Steimling about a book they edited, called The Opioid Epidemic in U.S. Culture, Expression, Art, and Politics in an Age of Addiction. In memory of Dr. Steimling, we bring you that interview again. I found myself intensely frustrated with the kind of dehumanizing language that often comes around policy discussions uh, dealing with opioid use. But at the same time, I knew that my students who were in recovery we're intensely human people. I teach in a school of music, and to me, there's nothing more human than making music or making art. And so this was a, an effort to try to reconcile those two aspects, this kind of dehumanizing policy language and the very human expression that I was experiencing with my students and with my neighbors as well. And that's interesting when you just mentioning the dehumanizing. That was actually one of my questions I wanted to ask you. People who have been affected by the opioid epidemic obviously are not just a number and they're real people with complex lives. You actually wrote a little piece about this in your book in the introduction, and I'm wondering if you can just read that for our listeners. People with addiction are widely seen as a problem that results from bad choices made by people with weak moral fiber, rather than as people who were caught in a vicious cycle that in many cases was started by the very political, financial, and industrial gatekeepers who want to prevent them from recovering. And I feel like that just really gets at what you were just talking about. Yeah, through all of this work. I've done uh, done work on, on mountaintop removal and on oil and gas and things like that, how those intersect with music. And this project really brought a lot of that together. I wrote an essay about a really great song cycle that is set in Wyoming County, West Virginia. And it very deftly ties together mountaintop removal and the opioid epidemic in such a way that you really do see how closely tied all of this is to extraction, right? The, the, the way we've experienced the opioid epidemic here is, is very much about trying to get as many dollars out of the mountains and the people who mine in the mountains, the people who live and work in the mountains as possible. And then, you know, like the old rusty coal tipples that are left behind, kind of leaving people with without the resources to recover from what I think is really just systemic misuse of human beings. Yeah. And something that um, is unique about your book is looking at the epidemic through the lens of culture and art, I don't think is something that we see every day. What are the implications of art and music and addiction? Art and literature and music and drama all play, I think, a very important role in the ways we understand the opioid epidemic. These sorts of mediums can be exploited in a number of ways to either exacerbate stigma 
around opioid use and around addiction and around recovery, or it can be used as a tool to break those stigmas. It can also be used as a tool to provide space for people to work out their own personal issues through recovery. And so the essays in this book really take a broad look at how media and arts shape our understanding of the opioid epidemic. I think we have to remember that the arts are a fundamentally human thing that are going to either help us get into recovery or they can exacerbate the problem. Music's ability to draw people together who have common issues, common problems, and who need a place to be safe together. I think we miss those opportunities a lot of the time. And so this book highlights the power of photograph exhibit uh, in shaping the ways that people understand the opioid epidemic in their own communities, or the ways that getting together and singing pop songs can help build community where community is needed. I'm hopeful that people who pick up the book will see some sort of way to use the arts in a productive manner as they think about recovery in their own communities. And you kind of touched on this, and I wish we had time to go through all the essays, yeah. but one of them that that stood out to me was actually the first one. So it's titled, Something Too Pure Slash Is Killing Us, Opioid Addiction, Porn, Endurance, and the Neoliberal Appropriation of Resilience. And yeah, Jordan. Jordan Lovejoy, and she she worked with us on our Folkways reporting project. I just love her, and I really found that essay interesting. And um, a lot of us are familiar with the term poverty porn, but to use the term opioid addiction porn, can you kind of talk to us about that a little? I should say, you know, Jordan is a, a native of Wyoming County who's doing work around recovery there while she's also completing her PhD. She's very much aware of the ways that literature and film lead people to believe that everyone in a given community is already addicted to opioids and is irrecoverable. And so in her essay, she takes a, a deep dive into uh, notions of resilience, the idea that you know, people who continually recover from floods or you know, recover from economic disaster are deemed to be resilient because they keep showing up and keep rebuilding their communities. But we seldom ever look at the reasons that resilience is needed. So she's really pointing to just the basic language we use around communities in Appalachia can sometimes be uh, a barrier for us to imagine what our future could possibly be, because we don't really understand why it is that we got in this place to begin with. Yeah. And I, I just love, again, how she uh, discusses and talks about resilience. And, uh, you know, it's something that so many of us here I just wanted to just quote the last little bit of her essay yeah. just for something for people to chew on. Would you mind reading that? So here's what Jordan has to say about resilience. She says, resilience suggests an overcoming, a finished product that survived the disturbance. As of now, though, we're not quite resilient. We are still enduring. And Travis, is there any other essay or a passage from the book that you would like to highlight for listeners or share and discuss briefly? I sure would. I would like to point out the, the work of uh, Jonas N.T. Becker. It has a great essay in here called A Whole is Not a Void, Extraction, Addiction, and Aesthetics. And Jonas is a photographer who uh, actually has a studio down in Monroe County, West Virginia, uh, but has roots here in the Morgantown area. And this is a, an essay that is kind of explaining a series of photographs that he's created that deal with the intersections between opioid use disorder, the opioid epidemic, and mineral extraction. To me, I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of high-minded, fine artwork that might not seem immediately accessible. I know it wasn't to me when I first started engaging with his work, but I would point out that the thing that is fascinating about Jonas's work to me is the way that it uses the materials of coal and of all the, the rock faces and the high walls and things that we have uh, here in West Virginia to look at the ways that our landscapes influence the ways we think about the state of West Virginia, we think about Appalachia, and how looking at 
scarred mountains might actually lead us to certain kinds of almost traumatic thinking. And so there's a, a series of great photographs in here, great essays that I, I think are sort of great commentary on those photographs that I think are, are really fantastic. I'm wondering, Travis, is there any parting thoughts that you have about your book and the opioid epidemic and Appalachia or anything else you want to add? I couldn't uh, get off this call with you without just saying it's necessary for us to consider what our future is going to look like. And until we deal with the traumas that have gotten us here, it's going to be very difficult for us to move forward in a way that is sustainable and that serves everyone in the Appalachian region. We're not looking toward a world where microbreweries are going to solve everything and where gentrification is going to solve everything, or where a statewide income tax cut is going to save everything. We need to spend more energy and more effort and more dollars in reducing the stigma around opioid use. We need to spend more dollars and more energy in providing spaces for people of color and for LGBT people with opioid use disorder to do recovery work in spaces that are safe for them. And we need to work very closely with our local, regional, and statewide politicians to make sure that harm reduction programs are in place across our region. Uh, We desperately need compassionate care and, and compassionate community building, or we're not going to survive Uh, not only this epidemic, but whatever the next one is to come. The opioid epidemic in U.S. culture, expression, art, and politics in an age of addiction, is available through West Virginia University Press. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Collective Action, Dimension 6, Jail, Sultry, Sean Watkins, Tyler Childers, Steve Earle, and Jerry Milnes. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and 6 master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.